0: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. I'm not saying Meghan Markle needs the money. She and Harry, you know, living the good life in California, all the Netflix money and the Spotify money, whatever other deals they have, are doing just fine. But it's so striking to me in that libel suit that she won against the Mail on Sunday in London. This had to do with printing a uh, private letter from her dad and breach of privacy and all that. Uh, the damages have now been awarded, and she's been awarded one pound in damages. Um, and I guess, I don't know, is that because she's a ex-royal, a semi-royal, and the thinking is by the judge or the court that she doesn't need the money? Or is it intended to say, hey, she was right on the merits, but it's not that big a deal, it's just symbolic? Now, I should add that the newspaper has been ordered to also pay 300,000 pounds in legal costs. they got to pay for her lawyers but the actual damage is one pound. Uh, if this was a sort of an average person, um, you would say that they got stiffed. All right, it is January sixth, twenty twenty, the one year anniversary, and it feels like a solemn day, even though you know we've had all the run up and the build up, and we all know there'd be a lot of speechifying and politicizing these uh, on this day. Um, I don't know, maybe because I've been in the Capitol so many times, maybe because I work two blocks from the Capitol, maybe because I do this for a living. You know, I just sort of feel it uh, on this day when Donald Trump canceled his press conference when President Biden giving a speech, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, so, story number one, it really is the only story, but I've got a bunch of other things for you on the podcast today. Story number one uh, What did Donald Trump do last night? He put out one of his statements. You know, he's got all the reporters on blast, and I'm constantly getting stuff from him in my inbox. And the statement says this has to do with schools. Now, this talk, I love when politicians say this talk, that means they don't really have solid evidence, but they're just. Picking up on something to make a point this is not unique to Donald Trump, believe me. this talk by the Biden administration again about closing schools and even vaccine mandates for school children. This is an outrage. And MAGA nation should rise up and oppose this egregious federal government overreach. Now, Donald Trump is actually pretty savvy in his use of language. Do you think on the eve of the January 6th, anniversary of the attack on our democracy, that calling on his supporters to rise up is the best language, the the language most suited to this occasion. Remember um, the statement he put out or the tweet he put out uh, inviting his supporters to Washington laugh for last January 6th, the day that Congress was supposed to certify the Electoral College results, and he said it should be wild. Well, now it's rise up. You can't say, oh, you know, this was very, it's very subtle, right? But it's really not subtle at all. Rise up. And by the way, on the substance of it, I don't know that the Biden administration is looking to close schools. I don't know that the Biden administration is even seriously considering vaccine mandates for school children. An individual school district might be able to do that. In fact, a lot of schools are closing, including here in the Washington area, because of COVID. Because they can't get enough teachers. They can't get enough staff members. They can't get enough bus drivers. Uh, But that's not a Biden administration move, but less important than that is the use of that language. Now, President Biden delivered a very powerful, very forceful speech in the rotunda of the Capitol this morning, surrounded by the statues that was a full-throated attack on the former president of the United States. He called Donald Trump, not using his name, but he kept saying the former president. He called him a liar, somebody who had concocted a web of lies. He kept talking about the former president and his supporters, including those Republicans uh, who attempt to deflect or minimize or justify somehow uh, the attack on the Capitol one year ago. Uh, And he just really hammered him. Now, I have to say right up front. If you're a Trump supporter or Trump sympathizer or a Republican doesn't like President Biden, this would have seemed to you to be a very, very partisan speech. Uh, there were certainly uh, moments of unity and we can do better and we must move on and all that. But the core of the speech was extraordinary. I don't know if this has ever happened in American history. an Extraordinary verbal assault on the man he defeated in 2020. And he didn't just limit himself to the um, January 6th riot, which he, the president called an insurrection. He talked about the web of lies, including the big lie about 2020 and the election. And he went through each Uh, aspect of it and talked about all the lawsuits that were unsuccessful and talked about uh, how 150 million people voted and they were the true patriots, not the people who carried Confederate flags uh, into the Capitol, which hadn't been done even during the Civil War. Uh, And he basically tried to demolish the case that Donald Trump continues to make to this day about how really there was widespread fraud and all that. He tied those two together uh, if you were a Democrat and even, even if you're not a big fan of President Biden, you probably like this speech because many have been waiting. You know, I mean, Joe Biden has tried the method of kind of ignoring Trump, the former guy, as he called him once, you know, almost pretending he doesn't exist. But that's really no longer possible. And it certainly was not possible on this day. So it was, you know, just a lot of fiery sound bites you know, wrapped up in a very well-written speech and Biden not being a great orator delivered it uh, about as strongly as I have seen him deliver a speech. Uh, And of course, it probably doesn't move the ball at all because the people who don't like Donald Trump are going to say, yeah, right on. And the people who like Donald Trump are going to say, you know, where does Biden get off making this a personal attack? Is it in his own political self-interest to blame Trump for January 6th and for the continued Arguments about a stolen election? Yes, of course it is. But as a journalist, you know I'm going. I'm going to go through the speech line by line and say, okay, what did Biden say? And leaving the rhetorical flourishes aside, dagger at the throat of democracy and all that, that was untrue. That was untrue about the 2020 election. That was untrue about January 6. And that's the problem. Many people don't believe the media when they say Trump doesn't have a basis for saying, um, you know, the election was wrongly decided. And as Biden pointed out in his speech, uh, there have been audits and recounts. And there isn't one state where anybody has been able to make a plausible case that the outcome would have been different. So um, the Biden White House was very clever before. the president and the vice president spoke this morning. They put out little excerpts. You know, this is in a White House that's very attuned to newspapers. And they know full well the newspapers are all going to have a today is the anniversary stories. And they wanted Biden to be in it. So they put out an excerpt from the president, um, but without giving the whole thing. First of all, they made it clear. Jen Psaki made it clear. White House officials made it clear that Joe Biden planned to very squarely blame Donald Trump for the Capitol riot one year ago today. And and how could he not? It's not just a question of, you know, the guy who defeated Trump and might have to run against Trump in 2024, using the occasion to take shots at him. I mean, the entire worldview that Trump represents, that January 6th was not an outrage, uh, that some of the people uh, who have been arrested or charged are being mistreated, that the election was stolen. I mean, everything that Biden believes in and that gives legitimacy to his presidency Trump opposes, so of course he's going to use the occasion to say that this would not have happened had it not been for Donald Trump. By the way, there are certain Republicans, Kevin McCarthy among them, Mitch McConnell among them, who said the same thing a year ago in the wake of the riot, but of, who are not who are just being quiet about it now for obvious reasons, giving Trump's clout in the Republican Party. Okay, so the president said. This moment, we must decide what kind of nation we are going to be. Are we going to be a nation that accepts political violence as a norm? Are we going to be a nation where we allow partisan election officials to overturn the legally expressed will of the people? Are we going to be a nation that lives not by the light of the truth, but in the shadow of lies? We cannot allow ourselves to be that kind of nation. So everybody's got their big pieces today. So here's one about, you know, the cosmic significance of it all. That's what we do in the media. We bring you the cosmic significance. Uh, New York Times piece today. Today, the Republican Party is very much still Mr. Trump's. And, you you know, this is actually a non-sugar-coated version, but also you can feel uh, how upset as an institution the New York Times is transforming his lies about a stolen 2020 election into an article of faith and even a litmus test that he is seeking to impose on the 2022 primaries uh, with the candidates he backs. He's the party's most coveted endorser, its top fundraiser, and uh, the polling frontrunner for the 2024 nomination. Trump is also deeply divisive, unpopular among the broader electorate, and under investigation for his business practices and his interference with election officials in Fulton County, Georgia. He remains the same politician whose White House oversaw four years of devastating Republican losses, including of the House and Senate. And while a scattered few Republicans publicly warned about yoking the party to him, this is a news story, by the way, more fret in private about the consequences. Yet, says the Times, uh, His unrivaled power inside the GOP one year after inciting the sacking of the Capitol uh, is a testament to his unrelenting hold on the loyalty of of his base. He says this is also an enduring lesson that Mr. Trump can outlast almost any outrage cycle no matter matter how intensely it burns. By the way, if they use the word incitement, you know, that's up for debate. Did he trigger it? Did he incite it? Is he the cause of it? Did he want it to happen? I mean, that's the terms of the debate. Okay, Washington Post piece talking about the impact on the GOP. The Saturday, back in November 2020, after Joe Biden was declared president-elect, a Cleveland businessman named Bernie Marino went on Twitter to congratulate Biden and urge his conservative friends to accept the results. He wrote that there were probably some fraud and illegal votes cast, but was it anywhere near enough to change the result? No. But now, this guy Marino is a candidate in Ohio's Republican Senate primary. He's deleted that tweet. And a new campaign ad, he looks into the camera and says, President Trump says the election was stolen, and he's right. Well, that's a pretty dramatic difference from what this guy was saying. Um and the Washington Post called him up and he said, just generally the election was stolen. There's no question about that. Marino is emblematic of the modern Republican Party echoing former President Donald Trump's baseless claims that the 2020 election was stolen, a position that has become the unofficial litmus test for good standing within the GOP. And the piece goes on to talk about 163 Republicans who have embraced Trump's claims about the election of running for statewide positions that would give them authority over local elections, including, you know, presidential elections. Um, at least five candidates for the House were at the Capitol on January 6th, including a guy named Jason Riddle of New Hampshire, uh, who's running for Congress, and federal prosecutors have charged him with, you know, breaching the Capitol that day and chugging wine inside the building. Okay, here's what I think is an important piece. Wall Street Journal op-ed by Carl Rove. Now, Carl Rove... Uh, as you all know, you know, was one of the premier architects of the modern Republican Party, uh, both in the George W. Bush campaigns and in his role as deputy chief of staff in the Bush White House. You know, that brand of republicanism, I don't have to tell you, has kind of fallen by the wayside as Trump and everything that Donald Trump represents is now really the, the the backbone, the essence of the Republican Party. So you could say that Rove is a voice from another era, also Fox News contributor. Here's what he says, addressing the people who are on Trump's side. And I, I can remember in 2016, it might have been 2015, um, uh, being in New York at Fox, Donald Trump coming through, I chatted with him for a couple minutes, and then he saw Rove, and Rove at that time Um, was kind of a skeptic of the Trump candidacy, but it it hadn't reached a point. You know, it was far before Trump got the nomination. And Trump made a beeline for Karl Rove and shook his hand. He said, you know, I'm going to win you over. I'm going to show you that you should be with us. And there were times when Karl Rove did provide some informal advice, but that was a long time ago, a lot of water under the bridge. Here's what Rove writes today in the journal. What if the other side had done it? What if in early January 2017, Democrats similarly attired and armed had stormed the Capitol and attempted to keep Congress from receiving the Electoral College results from the 2016 election? What if the Democrats claimed that Donald Trump's razor-thin victories in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin resulted from extensive voter fraud and should be rejected despite having failed to establish in a single court that extensive fraud had actually occurred? What if... Uh, Some of these Democrats breached the Capitol defenses and threatened violence against the Republican speaker, Paul Ryan, and Republican uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. What if they insisted that in his role as Senate president, then-Vice President Joe Biden, had sole authority to seat Hillary Clinton's electors from any contested states and thereby hand her the president? If this happens, says Rove. Would some of my fellow Republicans have accepted it as merely a protest? Would they have called patriots those charged with violent acts against our country and its laws and its constitution? Would they have accepted such extra-legal means to change the outcome of a presidential election? No, they would not. I'm certain of that. And so he's saying it's hypocrisy. Republicans uh, downplaying or now minimizing what went on one year ago but had this been the Democrats? Of course. And, of course, uh, you know, the flip side of that is, would the Democrats be justifying it if all these things had happened in this hypothetical? Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right. Let's get to number two. Uh, a couple of important stories here about the investigation. One from Reuters says the FBI has found scant evidence that the January 6th attack was the result of an organized plot to overturn the election, according to four current and former law enforcement officials. So, you know, there have been all of these uh, charges against more than 725 people. Um, And yet the FBI believes at this point, according to these sources, that the violence was not centrally coordinated by either far-right groups or prominent supporters of Donald Trump. Um, And it's pretty evident from the way that the charges have come down. A lot of people have been charged with, you know, violence related to the attack on our United States Capitol. Um, But there's a quote here from a former senior law enforcement officials with knowledge of the investigation. 90 to 95% of these are one-off cases. Then you have 5%, maybe, of these militia groups that were more closely organized. But there was no grand scheme with Roger Stone and Alex Jones and all these people to storm the Capitol and take hostages. Uh, FBI investigators did find that some cells... Including followers of Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, had aimed to break into the Capitol, but they found no evidence that the group had serious plans about what to do if they made it inside. They talk about um, stockpiling uh, bulletproof vests and other military style equipment um, based on one Proud Boy leader. So, you know, it does go to show you, I mean, the different terms get tossed around coup, insurrection. But it wasn't very well executed. It was basically a mob that got out of control. This is in to no way minimize what happened. And obviously certain people were trying to plan um, a violent insurrection, but according to what the FBI has found, based on this story, they didn't have the wherewithal, the tools, the clout, or even the intelligence to do this in an organized way, which is why it was so disorganized. I still say, just a reminder, how lucky we were as a country. The bravery of many of those Capitol Police officers preventing any members of Congress from being killed or members of their staff being killed or Mike Pence being hung as some in the crowd were demanding. Um, Then it would be impossible to say, oh, this was no big deal, but at what cost? So the country came very close to a far, far worse outcome. Story number three. Yesterday, Merrick Garland gave a speech. The attorney general has been getting a lot of criticism on this very point, which is, why haven't you brought more far-ranging charges? Why haven't you made more progress in an investigation that is now one year old? And let me say, first of all, Merrick Garland is just a terrible orator. He may be a fine, upstanding public uh, citizen, public servant, he obviously was intended by Barack Obama to serve on the Supreme Court, and maybe he's got the right temperament for that. As somebody just, I mean, just pure optics and, you know, standing in front of cameras, I mean, he's just soporific, you know, he's just kind of talks in a monotone. But he also has a temperament, I think, that probably is what Joe Biden wanted, which is that he, Joe Biden wanted somebody who would demonstrate the independence of the Justice Department after you know four years in which look, Donald Trump pressured um, both his main attorneys general Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr to do what he wanted. Ended up being basically enemies with both of them. Would would just publicly say you know, uh, intervene in the the, uh, allegations or the ongoing criminal cases involving Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and others. So there was a lot of pressure, public and private, against DOJ. So anyway, in his speech, Merrick Garland uh, said... um, that the actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. But basically, when you look at what he said, and I was watching it live, he just didn't say very much. I mean, it's a bunch of cliches. Yes, we will follow the facts. Yes, we will pursue. We will not give up. But on the other hand, to the extent That Garland is just taking a kind of a cautious, incremental, by-the-book approach. Um, Isn't he underscoring the point that the Biden White House is not trying to politically interfere uh, with the investigations? Because there would be an explosion if the White House did try to do so. Of course, some of those doing the exploding would be people look the other way when Trump tried to pressure the DOJ. But they put that to the side. Here, just to give you an idea of the pressure within the Democratic Party, here is Democratic uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona telling CNN, Merrick Garland has been extremely weak, and I think there should be a lot more of the organizers of January 6th that should be arrested by now. You have an attorney general who is feckless and has not been helpful in terms of preserving our democracy. So I'm sorry, Congressman Gallego, but you don't get to decide that. The Attorney General of the United States, you're free to critique his performance, but you think he should bring more charges based on what? You're not in there. You don't know what the evidence is. You don't know what the investigators have found. I don't think it's a stretch to say that if there was evidence of an organized insurrection or um, higher charges than that, that the Garland DOJ would bring that. But when you say, you know, um, he's feckless and he hasn't been helpful, hasn't been helpful what to what? The Democratic Party? I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that a Democratic politician or a Republican politician should not say because it shows you want an outcome. You don't really care if there's enough evidence or not. You just want uh, Garland to use the power of his office to arrest more people because that's the cause that you believe in, but that's not how the law enforcement system is supposed to work. So what does Garland do? He knows he's on the defensive, so he says— There cannot be different rules for the powerful and the powerless. But basically, all these kind of lines uh, could be uttered by anybody, Democrat or Republican. Um, They're they're just the standard things. You know, they could be uttered by Elliot Ness or uh, Perry Mason, you know. Uh, We build investigations by laying a foundation, the AG says. And he went through, you know, he went through some of the awful stuff that happened in in the Capitol riot. Uh, But this is interesting. He didn't, uh, you know, based on this political piece that I'm reading, Garland didn't refer to it as an insurrection. He didn't refer to it as an act of sedition. But you know what? These are Those are legal terms. So it's one thing for a bunch of pundits to say this was an insurrection or this was sedition, which is, you know, rebellion against the United States is essentially uh, not much different than treason. But an attorney general can't say that unless he's got legal evidence to back it up. And if he does, he should charge people. So Politico is saying, well, I mean, Politico is observing that he isn't using the words that many other Democrats use and that many people in the media use to describe January 6th. But in fairness, he's the attorney general of the United States. And when it comes to this sort of thing, he has to choose his words carefully. All right, let's move on. to story number four and it's a covert related story it's a sports story and it's really a bit of an outrage and i have to start by saying this i'm actually a fan of novak djokovic he is the number one tennis player in the world i happen to watch many of the matches um, the last time around when he was stood on the precipice of winning the grand slam he won the three other major tournaments And then he fell short in his final match uh, in a remarkable run. And I watched him uh, time after time. He he would lose the first set. He'd be down in the second set. And somehow he would summon the resolve and the uh, athletic prowess and the determination to win. And he would, you know, at a relatively advanced age for tennis, he would beat people who were much younger. So I don't say this. Uh, As somebody who's never liked a guy, look, he can also be arrogant and he's a hothead and I've seen him throw his racket and stuff like that. I'm not letting him off the hook. But it's outrageous what he just did in terms of the Australian Open. Now, you may not care about the Australian Open, but it's one of those four Grand Slam tournaments, so it's a very big deal in the world of tennis. And he arranged for the Australian Open to give him an exemption from the vaccine mandate required to play in that tournament, and you know, it's just like Aaron Rodgers and Kylie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets. All these people seem to think that, oh, I don't need to get vaccinated, even though I'm out there in contact with other people playing. Or you know, basketball certainly is a more of a contact sport, and football more of a contact sport than tennis, but still. Um, why does he get ma- an exemption? Why doesn't he just get the shot? Here's a guy who's worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, the world's top-ranked tennis player, and he's like, oh, I don't need to get this uh, vaccine. I'll just get an exemption. It won't The rules won't apply to me. So he goes to Australia yesterday, and there's, meanwhile, there's an absolute uproar in Australia over this. Why is he being treated differently? Why is he being allowed into our country? And the government blocks him from playing. The government will not give him a visa in order to participate in the tournament. So there's this weird standoff that goes on, like he's at the airport, but they won't let him come in, but he's still trying to get in. Uh, as, as I'm talking to you now, he hasn't yet left Australia, but it looks like that's where this is heading. Uh, so the state government uh, in the area around Melbourne didn't want to help the federal government in Australia change the visa. There was, you know, back and forth about was it the right kind of visa. But basically, um, here is the official statement uh, from the Victorian Sports Minister: We will not be providing Novak Djokovic with individual visa application support to participate in the twenty twenty two uh australian olympic Grand Slam. we have always been clear on two points visa approvals are a matter for the federal government and medical exemptions are a matter for doctors um so it looks like he can't play and who does he have to blame for that why doesn't he want to get the vaccine has he talked about this publicly i didn't know about this what possible reason well look it is his choice he doesn't have to get the vaccine But in doing so, he should understand that, at least in many of these um, tournaments, he can't compete. He's giving up, you know, here's a guy at the peak of his profession, and he feels apparently so strongly about not getting the shot that he's, in effect, walking away from that. Now, I don't know, is he going to come out and blast the government of Australia for blocking him? But ultimately, it's his responsibility. Uh, I imagine we'll be hearing much more about this. And number five, just as a kind of an indication, uh, a couple of items here about how much life has changed with the pandemic. Well, one I just saw just before I sat down that the NFL is considering—this is just sort of like the backup emergency plan—moving the Super Bowl, you know, which takes place in a little less than a month, from Los Angeles to Texas because of COVID because California is, uh, L.A. is one of the raging areas during this Omicron surge. I don't know if that's going to happen. I think it's a huge logistical challenge to do it this late in the game. And speaking of Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers, New York Post has this piece saying he is the favorite, and everybody acknowledges this, to win the MVP award in the National Football League this year. But there's at least one vote he won't be getting. So, you know, a bunch of sports writers who cover the National Football League get to decide on who the MVP is. So there's a guy, a sports writer named Hub Arkush uh, in Chicago. And he says he's not voting for Aaron Rodgers. Uh, He is one of 50 media members that the AP gives a vote to decide this MVP award. That's how it works. It's kind of like baseball writers deciding who gets into the Hall of Fame. So you'll recall that Aaron Rodgers um, kind of, not kind of, he lied. He lied and wasn't honest. He it, it implied that he'd gotten vaccinated, and it turns out he hadn't. And then he got COVID and he had to sit out or at any event he wasn't allowed to play because he hadn't been vaccinated, and then he came back. And here's what our told an outfit called The Score. I don't think you can be the biggest jerk in the league and punish your team and your organization and your fan base the way he did and be the most valuable player. Has he been the most valuable on the field? Yeah, you could make that argument. But I don't think he is clearly that much more valuable than Jonathan Taylor or Cooper Cup or maybe even Tom Brady. I just think the way he's carried himself is inappropriate. I think he's a bad guy. And I don't think a bad guy can be the most valuable guy at the same time. So, you know, Aaron Rodgers obviously is all pissed off about this. It probably won't prevent him from being the MVP. And I don't know, it's an interesting debate. If you are the most valuable player on the field, and that's always debatable, sports can be subjective on these things, is it proper for somebody who has one of these rare votes, as a professional sports writer, to say, you know what, I think this guy's a jerk and I just ain't going to vote for him. It's kind of came up in a very different way in the whole steroids debate. You know, should people who took steroids and then broke records be in the baseball hall of fame? But, you know, I can't really argue with the idea that he acted like a jerk and put himself and his team at risk and wasn't honest with the public about it. I mean, that's the worst thing. He he wasn't like Kylie Irving and some of these others who came out and said, you know what, I'm not going to play because I feel so strongly that I don't want, it's my medical decision, I don't want to be vaccinated. He didn't do that. He misled the team the league, and his fans. Now, in the end, is it a matter of one or two or three sports writers over against him? No. But it is interesting that this guy, Arkush, has taken this stand. And another example of how this Omicron surge is just changing life for about everybody. CBS and the Recording Academy announcing yesterday that the Grammy Awards this year will be indefinitely postponed due to Omicron. It was going to take place January 31st, CBS obviously was going to televise uh, it. Uh, statement from the network and this recording group, the health and safety of those in our music community, the live audience and the hundreds of people who work tirelessly to produce our show remains our top priority, given the uncertainty surrounding the Omicron variant, holding the show on January 31st simply contains too many risks. Um, now, this is not the only one. You also had delays um, or postponements by the New York Film Critics Circle, the National Board of Review, the Critics' Choice Awards. This is happening in a whole bunch of places. But the Grammys are a pretty big deal. And you remember it got postponed last year. It was held in March in that sort of outside arena. It, was, it wasn't in the Staples Center where it ordinarily would have been now called the crypto arena Um, but it was um, held Trevor Noah was hosting and he was walking around people were seated at socially distanced tables and it was a very weird event Um, and the thing is you know there's, there's no date for it to be rescheduled now will there eventually be Grammys I hope so I hope so not just for the sake of the music awards I hope so because that would indicate that the worst of Omicron has passed, that the case numbers will be way down, and we can again try to get back to something resembling normal. But I just, you know, every day I hear about people in both my professional life and my personal life. Well, oh, this one's got it. This one's friends got it. Steve Ducey of Fox uh, returned to uh, Fox and Friends today, said that he got Omicron and it ripped through his whole family. Um, you know, it's just. It's very, very, very contagious. Fortunately, for most people, the symptoms seem to be very mild if they are vaccinated. So I I hope uh, Steve Ducey is feeling better. Obviously, he felt better enough to uh, come back on the program. Uh, But it just goes with all the school closings. And again, this is not some government edict to close schools. Schools are closing in lots of places because too many teachers are sick. I mean, there are exceptions. The Chicago Teachers Union went on strike because they didn't want to go back in the classroom. And I think that's an outrage. And I think it screws the kids who have missed enough school over the last two years. But there are a lot of other places that want to have school and have had to push to virtual schooling, at least temporarily, or maybe for the month of January, or who knows, because... People are sick and they're supposed to quarantine while they're sick. Anyway, um, there'll be a lot more to say tomorrow about the events of today, January 6th. You know, uh, uh, anniversaries are just a sort of an arbitrary marker, but it is a chance to come together just as we do on the anniversary of 9-11 or used to be, not as many people take note of it now, December 7th, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor or just anniversaries in your life, or uh, sometimes good events, where we, or the anniversary of someone's death where we remember them. Uh, but this one remains, despite all the politicizing, all the, the way it's become so divisive, I talked about this earlier in the week, January 6th remains a very dark day for our country, not just because of what happened one year ago today, but because of the way it is continuing to fuel almost the alternative realities in our politics um, and I wish I could be optimistic that those divisions would fade but right now that doesn't seem very likely on that somber note I hope you have a good day I'd appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast here and we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed